Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Here we go. Testing. One, two. Testing. Welcome back to our What is the Church course. It is good to see your faces again. I'm very excited about what uh, we're going to be talking about tonight. And I got uh, good news and bad news up front. Uh, The good news is I am increasingly convinced of the importance of what we're doing. And I want to tell you why here in just a moment. And the bad news is this clock doesn't work down here. So I might talk all night long. Just kidding. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, uh, we want to pause and acknowledge your presence in this room. Not because of the room that it is per se, but because we're here. And we know that you promised to be with us to the end of the age, you said, Jesus. And so we pray that we could um, listen and learn and teach and instruct, be instructed uh, as those who dwell in your presence. I think about Psalm 27 and this uh, desire that David is expressing to dwell in your house forever. And I think about the recognition that that's actually something that we enjoy in a limited sense, for sure. We hope for heaven, but we enjoy Uh, by the grace of the gospel. And so we pray that you would give us a profound sense of your presence. We pray that you would quicken our minds and enlighten them and uh, help us to learn the things that you would have us learn. We desperately want to know you and we want to be faithful to you. And so we pray that this class could be a small, uh, one small part of the many different ways in which you're working in us as a body and hopefully through us to the world. Uh, here in the place where you've put us. So thanks for tonight. We pray that you bless it in all the ways you know are needed. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm increasingly convinced of the importance of what we're doing in asking the question, what is the church? And it's not that I wasn't convinced before. It's not that I sort of needed uh, a push in some sense. But as I've continued to think and reflect and engage the church and those leading the church and those thinking about the church and different institutions. And as I think back to my history of being a part of the church and being a leader in the church, and especially, honestly, as I think about reading about the church and as I think about uh, listening to uh, experts here and there talk about the church, one of the things that I think you would notice if you went to a Christian bookstore and you looked at uh, books on the church, or if you went to a conference where they were talking about, you know, what does the church need to do, I think you would notice a certain um, emphasis on the negative, a certain emphasis on criticism. Here's what's wrong with us. Here's what's wrong in the church, and here's what needs to change right now, or we're all going to be in trouble. And, and, and I get that. There's absolutely a place for that. There's absolutely a place for critical thinking and for, um, you know, a place, honestly, to, to put it strongly, for tearing down um, wrong ways of, of being and doing church. But I noticed that there's sometimes is a lack of taking that next step and saying something positive. Here's what we should do. Here's who we, who we are. And, and what we're doing in this class is the constructive. We're not spending a whole lot of time talking about here's what's wrong with the church and here's how we need to change per se. Because I don't fancy myself someone who's discerning or wise enough to even know how to ask a question, much less answer it like that. And what I think I can do though is read the text and say what do they tell us we are and should do. So I'm, in, I'm excited and, and increasingly convinced of the importance of what we're doing in part because we are doing the kind of rare, constructive, positive task of building something up 
Anybody can tear something down. Anybody can tear the church down. I know this because I spend most of my time with 19-year-olds who want to go into ministry. Anybody can tear the church down. But what we're doing is we're asking, how can we build it back up? And here's another thing I think you'll notice. Is if you would were to go and look for books that were telling us, here's what to do next about the church, that they'll jump immediately to the final questions that we're going to be asking in here. How should we organize our life together? How should we structure the church? These kinds of things. Value questions. But the problem is, and this is funny, now I'm doing, ironically, doing what I'm complaining about other people doing. I'm not so much complaining about the church as much as the books written about it. (laughs) one 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 of my issues is that you jump immediately from here's what's wrong to here's how we should organize our life together without asking the critical question, who are we as the church? And if we don't ask that question, then to me, any talk of here's what we should be doing and here's how we should be structured has the danger of becoming legalistic and ultimately, um, in the long run, doing more harm than good. So we're pausing together today. I'm thankful by God's grace and the wisdom of the leadership of this church that we're being given the time to do this. We're pausing this semester and first asking, what is the church? Remember, that's our first question. The church is what? And then once we've nailed down the church is, or at least gotten some things up on the board together, then we're going to go on to the church does, because the church does what it is. When you know what the church is, then you can ask the question, okay, so what are the things that we should be doing together as the church? Well, we can answer that once we've nailed down what is. And then once you've nailed down uh, what we do, you can ask the third question, okay, so how can we pull all this together? How should we do membership and leadership and ministry structures and those kinds of things? Those questions are way over here at the end. If you want me to put it in other terms, um, and I'll talk more about this as we go, but one of my favorite, any of you guys listen to TED Talks? familiar with this? It's a group of, uh, it's kind of a, you can find them online or whatever, just at TED Talks or Google TED Talks. Just a bunch of interesting videos, typically about, you know, 10 to 17 minutes long, about different things. My favorite one is by a guy named Simon Sinek. It's called Start With Why. And he talks about any organization has how, what, and why. The how is how you go about the process of doing whatever you think you're doing. The what is what do you do. And good companies don't focus so much on the how that they lose sight of the what. what. What are we doing? When we come to work, if we're a paper company, what are we trying to do? We're trying to sell paper so that people can use it. That's the what behind what we're doing. If we're a, a software company, then we're trying to create products that computers can make use of for the sake of people. Right? So that's the what. But he says, great companies, companies that inspire us and leaders that inspire us, don't just stop at the what and they don't just stop at the, at the, or don't just stop at the how or the what. They take one step further and dig into the why. We know why we're doing what we're doing. And for us, that's what we're getting at with this uh, what is the church thing. Specifically, our first uh, month of this, who are we as the church? The church is fill in the blank. And so let's pick up where we left off. We are a bit behind in terms of the notes, but we're not behind in the long run. We're today starting our handout for part three which although I think this is actually part four, if my memory serves me correctly, it took us two weeks to talk about the church being the people of God. That's what we've been reflecting on together for the last two times together. And if you're just joining us or if you missed a week, let me mention again that you can find this uh, podcasted on iTunes or you can go through the website. So you can catch up to the extent that you need to. We've talked about being the people of God. We're a people who don't make any sense apart from the reality of God. We're a people who gather uh, as a result of God's love for us, and we're trying to accomplish his mission in the world. And today we're going to switch gears and talk about the idea that we are the body of Christ. People of God, body of Christ. 
probably the two primary descriptions, primary phrases in the New Testament that are used to tell us who we are. We are the people of God, and now today we are the body of Christ. And my goal today is actually, I probably maybe shouldn't say this, um, because as uh, somebody pointed out to me afterwards, they, they were going to text into the text line for questions. Here's what I learned this week. Michael likes rabbit trails, <laughs> which is probably true. Uh, I'm going to try not to rabbit trail too much today, and I'm actually even going to skip over some subsections in your notes, because I do want to go ahead and finish this talk today. Um, I want to reflect together on being the body of Christ. So... Body of Christ. On the back of your notes, uh, the packet from the last week that is now the notes for this week, you have a list of texts that use this description, body of Christ. If you remember last week, I encouraged you during the week to take a look through those texts. I won't ask for a show of hands. Some of you probably did. I'm sure some of you didn't. You got a lot going on in your lives. But those are the texts. Now, we could do this a couple of different ways as we reflect on what it means to be the body of Christ. I could grab one of those texts, say 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4, and really just dig into what that one text has to say about us. That's certainly valuable. But what I'm actually going to be doing is a little bit different. Uh, I'm I'm asking you to trust me that I've studied these texts Uh, Not just one or two, but kind of all of them in relationship to the rest of the New Testament and Scripture. And then I backed up and said, okay, big picture. If we could allow these texts to be for us a window into just what is true about us, what would we discover? And that's how I want to do this. So we're dealing with it kind of as an idea or a concept that is reflected in these texts. But also we're going to be talking about some texts that don't use the phrase body of Christ and yet speak about the reality nonetheless. So, as is our custom, I will talk through these things. If at any point you have a question, feel free to raise your hand and stop me. If I don't see that, uh, you know, those who are around, uh, raised hand, point to me, jump, do some dances, get my attention however you can, and we'll talk through. Um, I I am aiming to finish uh, in time today for some questions on the back end as well. So, it's 5.20 now. It's blinking, but it's 5.20 now, so I think that means we have two hours and 40 minutes. So... We should be good. Here's the first thing I want to say. We're the body of Christ. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means this. We are sinful sinful people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Can I just, I know this isn't Sunday morning and I'm not preaching, but can I just get an amen from that? We're sinful people who are saved by Jesus Christ. And we need to start here. We, as people who are not Catholics and yet consider ourselves Christians, are products of the Reformation. Uh, led by a man named Martin Luther. And one of Luther's big things is that we are simultaneously justified. We are saved. We are protected by grace and sinners. We are still broken people. And we never leave that entirely behind this side of heaven. We are sinners who have been saved by Jesus Christ. So let me unpack that in a couple of different ways. Uh, This is where I'm actually going to skip the third point about justification. We'll come back to it if we have time at the end. Because I can cover what needs to be stated under the first two sub points. Here's the first one. We are a people who have been served by Jesus. I think this is underrated. I think sometimes we look down on people who come to church because they want to have their needs met. Or who come to church for some selfish reason. Do you have any idea why Peter and most of the other guys said yes to Jesus? Because they thought he was going to take over the world. You know what I mean? Whenever I, one of my favorite things to do in my classes at the college, and mind you, these young men and women are here because they want to go into Christian service. A lot of them want to go into full-time Christian service. They're not all awesome, I'll grant you that, but they have this desire to serve God. And I love asking them, tell me why you first went to church. Because half the time, the guys say, 
for, you know, you already know what I'm going to say, for a girl, you know what I mean? I got a couple married guys in my classes now, and both of them said, yeah, my girl looked at me and said, it's either you go to church or you say bye to me. And so they went to church. And I don't think that's lame. I don't think it's lame at all. Some of you came to church for the first time because you realized you were in a financial mess and you couldn't pull yourself out of it, so you thought maybe Jesus can help me. Some of you came to church because you had a physical issue and you thought maybe Jesus can help me with this. We could go down the list, but you came to church because you thought maybe Jesus can help me. And guess what? Jesus wants to help you. I'm not a, I'm not a prosperity guy. I'm not saying all of your dreams are going to come true and all of your pain is going to go away automatically. But Jesus is someone who served us. Think about Mark 10, 45. It's the college is where I work's favorite verse. And it's for good reason. Jesus is talking and he said, um, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a beautiful verse. And we rightly read that verse in context to mean we should serve others. But let's not forget what it actually says. Let's slow down a little bit and notice what Jesus says. I came here to serve you. And so I think we have to start with the recognition that we are and always will be people who have been served by Jesus. The Gospels don't downplay this. People come to Jesus because they need a physical healing. People come to Jesus because they're hungry. People come to Jesus because they're tired of the government. People come to Jesus because they're looking for a better fill in the blank. And Jesus says, and he'll get to a point where he says, now I'm going to tell you now how we move forward together. But he starts by saying, I actually am here to serve you. Maybe not exactly the way you want, but this is why I came. And so, as sinners who are saved by Jesus, let's first of all acknowledge that we're people Jesus has served. Which, for us, puts... How many of you would rather give than take? Let me put it this way. Rather give than receive. If you had $100 uh, that was just expendable or $1,000, let's put that way. You've got 1000 bucks in your wallet or your bank account and you see somebody in a real need. How many of you would, would absolutely love to write them a check or hand them some cash to take care of that need? How many of you would just love it? You would just, it would be their favorite thing in the world if somebody said, I know you need this and gave you a check for $1,000. <laughs> some of you are like, I'll take the money and run. You know, not just run, but say thank you. But not as many hands, Right? Because most of us would rather give than receive because receiving puts us in a position of vulnerability. And that's precisely part of the point. That we come to Jesus and stay with Jesus as people who can't help but be vulnerable. I do not like being vulnerable. I'm a grown man. I try to take care of my own. I work hard. Vulnerability is not a virtue to my flesh. And yet the gospel says, well, here's where you start with your relationship with Jesus. In a position of need. And so we're people who've been served by Jesus. Let me be a little bit more specific. We have received the benefits of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The church, remember, is a group of people. Not a building, but a group of people. And here we see that the church is a group of people who have received the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. All those things work together. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his, 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 his ministry on earth. His death on the cross and him being raised from the dead. We have received the benefits. What benefits am I talking about? Let me just give you five of them or four of them here. We've moved from guilty to forgiven. So if this side of the stage represents us apart from Jesus or before Jesus uh, or without Jesus and this side represents us with Jesus, then the first thing we notice is that we've been moved from guilty to forgiven. Over here, we recognize there is a holy God who made us. We have rejected his ways, decided we want to do things on our own. And as a result, we are rightly headed for judgment and wrath and destruction. We're guilty. 
God is right to judge us. Much like you're right to punish your kids when they do crazy stuff. God is right to judge us. And yet we have been moved from that position of guilty to this position of forgiven. Which means we are not held eternally responsible for our actions. We do not have to experience the negative consequences, eternally speaking, of our sinful behavior. We have been forgiven. Those sins have been released is what the word actually means. It's forgiven is a word that means the release of a debt. They've been released. You don't owe this anymore. Secondly, and to to, to move a little bit more deeply into our psyche, uh, there is a difference between these two. Secondly, we've moved from shameful to cleansed. This is different. Recognize, guilt is about our standing before God in a legal type sense. It's the recognition that I've done wrong. Shame is the deep sense that I am wrong. Shame is why we keep secrets. Uh, shame is why sometimes it's hard to go to sleep when you put your, your head on the pillow at night. And shame is why uh, some of us medicate in different ways to try to get ourselves to be able to go to sleep at the end of a day. Because we are, it's not just I've done something wrong, it's that I feel like deep down I'm broken and I probably can't be put back together. Shame is why we act macho. Shame is why we try to win. Shame is why we brag. Shame is why we become excellent at whatever it is, whether it's a sport or an instrument or academics or business. Shame is, is part of what drives us to succeed because we want to, it's almost like we're having this conversation with ourselves and we're constantly saying, no, like I'm not messed up. I'm not worthless. I'm not dirty. I'm good. And Jesus says, well, you, you, you can move from shameful to cleansed because of me. Not because of your accomplishment, but because of me. Because of my death on the cross. And we'll get to the death piece here in a second. Thirdly, we move from alienated to reconciled. This is the relationship piece. Uh, but at the same time, when I, hear, when, you, when I say relationship, don't think two people having coffee have, you know, in a coffee shop and arguing, and then they decide that they agree with one another. No, reconciliation is a word taken from like, the relationships between two nations who are at war. We've been moved from alienated from God, fighting against him in a battle, to being reconciled to him. Next, oh, there are five on here. I thought there were five. We move from enslaved to free. And you've got texts for all of these. We're not going to read them. Those are there for you to meditate on later. We move from enslaved to free. We were people who couldn't not sin. We are now people who can do the right thing. We were people who saw the law of God as an oppressive burden because it wasn't something we could keep. We now find ourselves transformed. Slowly, sure, but transformed so that we actually want to do the good. We want to trust God and love people. And lastly, as a way of summarizing the whole thing, we move from dead to alive. We'd separated ourselves from the life source that is God's spirit. We had rejected him, and so he had allowed us to continue existing um, with an inactive spirit. Part of us was dead. Paul says in Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He says multiple times in that verse, in that passage, you are dead, but you've been made alive with Christ. So those are the benefits that we've received. We move from guilty to forgiven, from shameful to cleansed, from alienated to reconciled, from enslaved to free, from dead to alive. How? He died in our place that we might live in him. I mean, you know this. This is the gospel. I'm not telling you something you don't know. But what I want you to be realizing is that when we answer the question, what is the church? We don't move away from what we know of the gospel. We move closer into it. And the church is made up of people who have recognized Jesus died in my place so that I might live in him. He identified with my sin. 
with our sin by becoming a human being and submitting himself to the limitations of what it means to be human. And not only did he submit himself to the limitations of being human, he died an ignoble, inglorious, very painful, socially shameful death on a cross. He paid the penalty for my sin so that now I can receive these gifts because I've been united to him by faith. That's the gospel. All you got to do is trust him. All you got to do is say, Jesus, I want your death to count for mine, and now I belong to you. That's the offer of the gospel, and we are people who have accepted the offer of the gospel. So, we're sinful people who've been saved by Jesus Christ. What this means in a general sense is that we're people who've been served by Jesus. What this means more specifically is that we have received the benefits of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And we could go on to talk about how we're not, we are justified by faith, not by works of the law. But again, for the sake of time, I'm going to have to trust that you've heard something like that or at least have picked up on enough of it from what I've said that you get it. There's not a list or code that you have to keep in order to maintain God's favor. And this is critical for us when we think about being the church. Because when we get to questions of what should we do, what we shouldn't do, how we shouldn't frame up what we do is, here's a new list of requirements that you have to do in order for God to be happy with you. No, that's forgetting the gospel. And when we forget the gospel, when we forget the grace, when we forget the fact that we've been forgiven by Jesus' death, his perfection, not ours, then we set ourselves up to do church in ways that are not life-giving. We set ourselves up to, to do church in ways that are not fruitful. And I would dare say that one of the reasons why the world thinks the church is judgmental is because we are sometimes now, I'm not even think, I don't even think the world should like us for the record. So it doesn't actually bother me all that much when the world doesn't like us. Jesus said the world wasn't going to like us. I don't know why we're surprised when we discover that he was telling the truth. But at the same time, I recognize that sometimes we're too judgmental. Sometimes we're too much a people with a list of do's and don'ts, a list of rights and wrongs, and that's kind of it. And if that ever happens... What has taken place long before that is we've lost sight of the fact that we are people who are sinful and yet have been saved by Jesus Christ. All right, I think you get the point there. Let's go on to my second, under, my second point under being the body of Christ. We are, are a people living under Christ's authority. We are a people living under Christ's authority. And here I need you to note again the detail. I didn't say we are people living under Christ's authority, although that is true. I said, we are a people living under Christ's authority. Much like when we talked about being the people of God, remember that in the Bible, to be a people means to be like a group that has its own Lord and way of life. I talked about how the word politic initially didn't have to do necessarily with only our elected leaders, but rather if you have a community that organizes themselves around a common leader and that tries to live a certain way of life with certain values and convictions, there you have, in the general sense of the term, a political community. Now that's what we are. And again, by that I don't mean, therefore, we should vote this way, nor do I mean, therefore, we shouldn't vote at all. No, we engage that political world from the standpoint of this one. Because first of all, when we say we, if something tragic happens in the world, when 9-11 happened, and I know this is sensitive and I don't speak of this, these things lightly, I remember as a young man, one of the things I noticed about the church was the response was, what should we do about this? An obvious question. 9-11 has happened, what should we do about this? And there's a sense in which, as Americans, we are asking, what should we as Americans do about this? Perfectly legitimate question. But what we need to remember 
as the church is that when we say for the first time, or at the core, what should we do about this? How should we respond to this? Our first we is this people that I'm talking about right here. A people who live under the authority of Christ. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. And so if indeed we are the body of Christ, then our first we is the church. And so we think about these things. Again, I talked about the idea of, uh, maybe I haven't talked about this part actually yet. So whenever the New Testament authors say that we are the body of Christ, one of the things that the people in the context would have understood this to mean was uh, kind of a political, it's a political type metaphor. Whenever like an Aristotle or a Plato or one of the Greek rulers or one of the Roman emperors would talk about their community, they would often call it a body. And so in their world, remember we, when we read the text, have to ask how would the original readers hear it. They would have heard this to mean, okay, there's the body of Rome and apparently you're saying that we're the body of Christ. So in some sense, even while we still live within the Roman Empire, that we're a separate thing, that we're a separate group. And that's precisely what Paul meant by this. I remember reading, and I don't mean to keep haranguing on the same thing, but I remember hearing a quote the other day I wanted to share with you. This guy spoke in chapel. I thought this was a pretty good way of putting it. Um, and I, for, the, for the record, I couldn't care less if you're, well, I could care. But ultimately, you can be a Republican or a Democrat, whatever you think is most faithful. But I like this quote. I don't follow a donkey or an elephant. I follow a lamb. I like that. Now, at the end of the day, again, don't take it for more than it is. It's the quote that's designed to get us to think about our primary commitment. It's not saying you can't have other political allegiances, but there's some wisdom to that, that our first leader is Jesus. Let me build this out a little bit more with some text, so you know I'm not just making it up. Within the idea of living under Christ's authority, we need to pay attention to some of the titles in the New Testament that point to his authority. One of them, and it certainly relates to the metaphor of a body, is that Jesus is our head. You see this in multiple texts, Ephesians 1.22 there on in Ephesians 4.15, 5.23, you see it a bunch in Colossians. You see something similar in 1 Corinthians 11. So Jesus is our head. And what that means biblically is, in part, he's the source of life and intelligence and everything that flows to us. But it also means he's our authority. Remember that passage in Ephesians 5 about you know, husbands and wives and husbands. The emphasis is actually on husbands. You should love your wives. It says that multiple times. Wives, you should place yourselves under. Submit to your husbands as to Christ who is the head of the church. Head of the body which is the church. Husband is head of the wife. As Christ is head of the church. The Bible never says the husband is the head of the household for the record. It says the, 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 that the husband is head of the wife. Different, different uh, nuance there for another day. But different nuance. And the parallel there is based on the idea that Jesus is our head. He's our source of life as well as our authority. And his authority is certainly even more dominant or more, um, what's the word, uh, thick, for lack of a better word, than even the husband authority in Ephesians 5. The second metaphor or title that's used is uh, rather obviously speaking to these things, and that is that Jesus is our king. When he rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, he was acting like a king, albeit a strange one. But nonetheless, a king. He was enacting a prophecy from Zechariah about a promised king. Uh, Jesus would, call, would, would answer this particular call, son of David. If somebody says, son of David, and this guy leading a movement in the first century turns and says, yes, are you talking to me? That person thinks they're the king. So in other ways, it becomes more explicit. You can look at those references there on your own, recognizing that Jesus is our king. And then lastly, or not lastly, next, Jesus is our savior. 
Say, wait, what does this have to do with authority? Everything. Because there were two people in the world of the, New, of, the world of the first century who were called Savior. One of them was God, and the other one was Caesar, the Roman emperor. Savior was as much a title of authority as Lord. Now, Savior, we rightly recognize, means that Jesus saves us. But Savior, in its New Testament context, means this is the person that we look to and trust as our authority who's bringing us good things. So you have head, you have king, you have Savior, and then don't miss the two big ones, Messiah and Lord. I didn't put a lot of references because if you go home and start reading the New Testament, pretty soon you're going to run into both of these words. If you want an exercise, just read through the book of Acts and make a note of every time you see Messiah or Christ, same word, Messiah or Lord. These are fundamental titles for Jesus which speak to his authority. So let me put this in practical terms. Practically speaking, here's everything I'm saying. Simply put, as the church, here's what I'm saying by saying we submit to his authority. If Jesus commands it, we do it. It's that simple. I know it sometimes is complex in terms of saying, well, what exactly does he command and how does that play out in our world? Maybe you're in the, in the medical field and you're having to determine you know, difficult questions about you know, uh, the value of life at beginning and end. At the beginning of life, it's not actually that complex. But the end of life, maybe some people in your world, in your world, people are saying both are complex. So you have to wrestle with these things and you have to realize Jesus never dealt with like bioethics. He never dealt with some of the questions we deal with. So I understand Jesus didn't say something about everything, but he said a lot about a lot. And the point is actually less this or that specific issue, but the mentality that we carry around our lives, which is if, if Jesus commands it, then I do it. And I think that has to be the attitude of any person that calls him Savior and Lord. I think there's, again, room for, I'm in process on this one. I don't know what he thinks. Okay, I'm fine with that, actually. But let me make sure of this. If you became convinced that Jesus thought you should do A, you'd do A, right? Or you would at least believe that you were supposed to. If Jesus thought this way about this issue, this issue you would follow him in that, right? And if you say yes, then I say, we're good. Let's keep talking about this together. I'm fine disagreeing on the details. I'm not okay disagreeing about this if we're both claiming to be followers of Jesus. So again, to come back to some of the controversial issues in our day, and again, not even trying to say we land here or there, although I think you know where we land, but rather asking the more fundamental question, how do we frame this up? When it comes to the question of uh, homosexuality, is it moral, is it not? And then the secondary questions of legality. We've got to talk about those things. And wherever we end up saying about some of these things, aspects of which are clear and other aspects of which are maybe a little muddy, I don't know. Whatever we end up saying... We are not concerned to be on the right side of history. We're concerned to be on the right side of Jesus. And I don't mean that snarky, but that's what I'm talking about. I think that's what it means to be the church. That our fundamental motivation is Jesus-centered. He's the one that we look to to tell us um, what we are to do. And in this, one of the things that we're going to have to get used to as parents is looking at our kids and saying, because we're different. That's not an easy thing to say. I read a fascinating book about the church engaging culture. One of the better ones read it years ago. And he talked about how we actually have a lot to learn from Jewish communities in this regard. And what do you mean? And he's talking about how you know, a Jewish child grows up in a home at those who are devout Jews and have unique customs and have unique rules. And there are certain things everybody else does, but they don't do. And they come home and say, why? And the parents say, because we're different. We've got to be able to say that to our kids increasingly. Why do we not say those things, do those things, believe those things, are not okay with those things, are okay with these things? Because we're different. And that's hard. That is admittedly hard. I feel you. 
I, I, my kids are getting to that age. Some of you are certainly beyond where I'm at experience-wise. I'm starting to wrestle with, at a personal level, just how difficult that is to teach your kids to live differently because they live in a home that is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. Not easy, but part of what it means to be the church. So there is this command obedience dynamic that we can't do without and we can't live without. You see it in the Gospels. You see it in 1 John, among other places. Jesus commands we obey. So the first thing I've said is that we are uh, sinful people who've been saved by Jesus Christ. The second thing I've said is we are a people living under Christ's authority. And the third thing I want to say is we are a community of disciples learning to walk as Jesus did. Now I want to take this idea of obeying Jesus' command and back up a little bit and recognize that Jesus doesn't doesn't just replace the old law with a new one. He replaces the old law with a new vision for the type of people we could become. Kind of a strange way of putting it. What do I mean by that? Well, let me put it this way. Put simply, we are called to become like Jesus. How many of you were actually able, no shame if you don't get to raise your hand, one of the things I will never do is judge you. I'm so grateful and honored that you come here to learn on a Wednesday night. You have many places you could be and many things you could be doing. So no judgment from me. But how many of you did get an opportunity this last week to read through some of those Body of Christ texts? A couple hands here and there. One of the things that you may have noticed is very often in these texts you see kind of this, this, this sort of rhythm. Since we are the body of Christ, therefore we must live this way. Did you catch any of that? Since we are the body of Christ, therefore we should pursue unity and be peaceful toward one another. Ephesians 4. Since we are the body of Christ, Romans 12, we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than is appropriate. But instead we should thank God for the grace he's given us and use our abilities to serve up. Uh, to, to build up and serve the rest of the church. So there's this dynamic of, since we are Christ's body, we should behave in these ways. And of course, seeing this, and, and, and behave in these ways, meaning look like Jesus, do the kind of things he did. And of course, seeing this with the body of Christ texts, just aligns with and parallels virtually the whole New Testament. I mean, you could seriously ask any book of the Bible, and I know some of them better than others, but you could ask any book of the Bible, and I could tell you, I think fairly clearly, here's the way in which this book is calling you to be like Jesus. Let me look at some of these. How many do I <laughs> put like eight on here? Um, let me just go quickly through some of these. Uh, this is actually a decent time where if you're tired, check out at some point in this next little bit, but come back to me quickly. Maybe pick two of these books. I'm not going to do this for long, but this is a time where I'm going to be saying different aspects of the same thing. First John. If you read First John, simply put, I'm going to tell you in three words, the emphasis on how we are to live in this particular book. Love like Jesus. It's that simple. John says in First John 2, 6, anyone who claims to be in him must walk as Jesus did. Walk is a word for means your conduct, your way of life. You must walk as Jesus did. And he goes on to define it. People think that book is flowery and nice because it talks so much about love. That book is intense. That book will put you on your toes. Like that, don't read it tonight. Read it in the morning because if you read it tonight, you're going to have trouble sleeping. It seems sweet, and it is, but it's strong because he consistently says, if you don't love like Jesus, then don't actually claim to be a person who lives in him because that's what happens to people who live in him is they start loving other people around them. This is where it says, if you see your brother like laying on the side of the road and you don't actually reach out and help him, why do you think that you should call yourself a person who belongs to Jesus? Dang, okay, now we're for real. Right? That's what 1 John does that to us. Then you move on. What's another one? Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as, among other things, a new Moses. A new 
teacher of law in its broadest sense. A new teacher of Torah. Let me just give you the word. The Torah is the Jewish word, the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Torah. Torah means instruction. This is God's instruction. If you look at Matthew's gospel, if you like laid it out on the floor and backed up and took a bird's eye view, here's what you would notice. In Matthew's gospel, you have action, teaching, action, teaching, action, teaching. It's back and forth from action to teaching. Guess how many teaching blocks there are in the gospel of Matthew? Five. Why? Because he's saying Jesus is the new Moses. And he's here to reveal to you the fullness of what God has for you in terms of a new way of life. Chapters 5 through 7 is the first one, the famous Sermon on the Mount. But he's just getting started at that point. He talks later on about the nature of the kingdom. He talks in another one about community life together. Talks in another one about uh, some events in the first century stretching on into the end of the world. I mean, there's a lot going on here. It's Jesus revealing God's will for his people in this new day. Keep going from Matthew, you arrive at Mark. Mark is my favorite gospel. Mark uh, is divided into two halves. Uh, Mark, you may remember this from a Mark series not too long ago. Mark 1 through 8 is the first half of the gospel. And it's all about how Jesus is the Christ. Everything in Mark 1 through 8 is designed to show you Jesus is the Messiah. He's the sum of your hopes and dreams. He's the one you've been waiting for. He will serve you. He will heal you and feed you and teach you. He will be here to do what you think you need done and then some. And then you get to this critical turning point in between 8 and 9 where Jesus says, actually, let me clarify, I came to die. So 1 through 8, Jesus is the Christ. 9 through 16, the Christ is headed for a cross. And oh, by the way, he wants you to come too. It's in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus first says to Peter and all the rest of them, actually, if you want to be my follower, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Let's go. Who's in? I know it sounds like a lot, he says, but what good is it if you keep the whole world, but you forfeit your own soul? Like, I don't understand how this isn't a good deal. Jesus is saying, calculate it. I mean, do the charts and graphs here. Figure it out. Make some ledgers. Benefit, cost. Yeah, I think it's worth it. And then from there, he calls them to the way of the cross. A way of suffering on behalf of others. A way of loving so much that you don't take, uh, that it doesn't really freak you out when all of a sudden loving people costs you. Uh, this sounds sort of high and noble. And then you, then you get married. I got a lot of students who are freshly married like five weddings, I did like four weddings in five weeks this last spring, which means I knew I was going to be having a lot of conversations this fall that went something like this. Man, this is harder than I thought. You know what I mean? A couple of them are in the room. Say, well, you've been there, right? You've been in situations where I'm going to try to love someone now. Whoo, wow. This is a lot harder than I thought it was. And uh, Mark says, yeah, that's, that's the way of the cross. That's the way of the cross. You walk that together, and it won't necessarily be simple or easy, but you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. So I think for time, I probably ought to move on. We'll skip over the other books. Luke, Galatians, Philippians, James, Peter. Dang, they're so good. All in different ways essentially say, here is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You live like Jesus. So we are disciples is another way I've put this. So let me come at it from another angle. We've talked generally about we're called to be like Jesus. Let me back up a little bit. We are disciples. So we're a community of disciples learning to walk as Jesus uh, did. What does this mean in practice? First of all, a disciple is the New Testament's favorite word to describe you. I don't know if you know that. The word Christian is used three times in the New Testament. And those times are beautiful, by the way. Those times are great. But uh, disciple is used 269 times. A little bit of an imbalance. 
This word disciple in its original context means uh, learner. The word mathetes. Anybody in here named Matthew? Your name means learner. I don't know if you know that. It comes from the Greek word mathetes, disciple, learner, apprentice. And the idea in the ancient world is if you wanted to be a carpenter, you would become a disciple, an apprentice to a carpenter. You would be with them learning to do whatever they did. If you wanted to be an educator, then you would go and sit under an educator and you would live with them and learn to teach how they taught. If you wanted to be, a, you know, fill in the blank, any number of things, if you wanted to be a fisherman, if you wanted to be a, a leather worker, if you wanted to be uh, all these different crafts, then you would apprentice yourselves to someone who does that, who is good at that, and you would live with them learning to do what they did. So in our sense, Jesus says, be my disciple. Here's what that means. It means that we are being with Jesus, learning to be like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. Now, I know we're not with him in the same sense that the the disciples were. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit next week. But we are with Jesus in a very real, if admittedly mysterious type of complex way, learning to be like him. Let me put it one more way. We are living our lives as Jesus would if he were me. That's your task as a disciple of Jesus. That's who we are as a community of disciples. We're a community of disciples that is attempting to live our specific lives as Jesus would if he were you. So if Jesus had your body and your family and your house and your job and your neighborhood and your neighbors and your other neighbors and your, the neighbors you don't want me to mention. And you know what I mean? Like if you go down the list, your specifics, if he was in your shoes, take that spirit of Jesus, the values of Jesus, the character of Jesus, plug it into your life. And that's the goal. That's the vision. That's what we're trying to become. And this goes beyond behavior modification to a transformation of the heart. Transformation of the interior, of the core. We're not just talking about doing the right thing. We're talking about becoming the right kind of people. When the Bible talks about your heart, or your will, or your mind even, these are different ways of getting at what we call your character, your your goal. And the goal for us is that our character would be so transformed that we find ourselves naturally doing the good. You think about if you're, I mean, some of you are, we were, everybody in here is good at something, even if you don't think you are. Some of you are good at writing people letters. Some of you are good at a sport. Some of you are good at a certain job. Let's say, for instance, let's just do easy analogies. Let's say somebody in here plays the piano. Anybody in here play the piano? Yeah, could you find me, how quickly could you find me a D note? Pretty quick, yeah? Any of you not know, like, when I say find a D note, you would say, uh, what is that? I thought it was a C note. $100 bill? Is that what you want? Like, what's going on here? Yeah, so you, but if, you, if you know this, you can walk to a, to a, to a uh, piano and immediately just find it, boom, because you have that natural ability. How many of you, <laughs> uh, when you see a red octagon with the letters S-T-O-P, how many of you stop at that thing pretty naturally? I would hope that you're raising your hand right now. So Claire's in kindergarten, and she's first discovering these, so when I drive with her right now, my lovely sweet daughter, kind of a little bit of annoying, because she's like, Daddy, there's a stop sign, Daddy, you got to stop, Daddy, don't go past that sign, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, babe, I know, I know how to drive, all right? Second nature. The goal is that uh, character, good character, becomes second nature. So look at my little cute drawing that I have for you. That's you right there, looking all happy. You got your heart there to represent your character. Here's how life works. You face situations that trigger certain responses, and you respond with thoughts, actions, attitudes. Those thoughts and actions and attitudes actually reveal what's in your heart. They reveal the condition of your heart. If, you, if, you, if somebody annoys you, if you, somebody comes up to you and says um, something mean, and you respond by saying something mean back, that says something about what's in your heart. 
If you respond to annoying children, as much as we love them, if you respond with impatience, this is my probably primary sin. I'm, I just, I tend to be an impatient person. And that says something about what's going on in my heart. If I respond to that trigger, however, with patience, if it just comes naturally to me, or if I'm able to say in that moment, all right, no, I'm not going to respond impatiently, I'm going to respond patiently. I'm going to let this better part of me win. Then that natural response is different. The goal of all this, becoming disciples of Jesus, being disciples of Jesus, is that our heart gets so transformed that we naturally do the right thing. When we're wronged, we forgive instead of seeking vengeance. When we see a need, we do something about it. Instead of thinking, I, just, I can't, I, got, I have this money earmarked for other things, like I've got to pay the bills and we're saving up for this, I just can't help them in the situation. I know how easy that is. And the goal is for us to be people who just kind of naturally walk in his steps. Naturally do the things that Jesus did. Notice how some of all this is coming together. The only way that's going to happen is if we continue to remind ourselves the fact that we're saved by Jesus, right? So picking up here though, under this idea of we are a community of disciples learning to live like Jesus, our goal is for our inner life to match that of Jesus. To live like him if he were me. Let me fill in the blanks on this next bit. It adds to what we talked about last week, so I don't need to talk long on it. This adds to what we said about being a sign and foretaste of God's goal for humanity. Here's what we said then. This is last week. said, we're the sign and foretaste of God's goal for humanity. And we articulated this in two ways. We said, first of all, pointing forward to eternity, we're a preview of God's eternal kingdom. The world should be able to look at us and see something of what life in heaven will be like. The way we treat each other. The way we respond to things. And so pointing forward to eternity, that's what they'll see. A preview. Pointing back to creation, we model God's original design. When they look at us, they should see what God intended when he made people. Now I want you to notice how both of these points, uh, both of these ultimately point to looking just like Jesus. Looking back, we're created in God's image, which is Jesus Colossians 1.15. In Genesis, it says, you were created in the image of God. You've heard that verse, right? You were created in the image of God. Uh, in Colossians, uh, Paul says, Jesus is the image of God. Do you notice the, the, uh, the, the parallel there, or the lack of parallel? What's the point? The point is that God had Jesus in mind when he made you in the first place. Jesus was the uh, model. You're the, you're the, you're the, uh, you're the, the copy. In your own unique way. Jesus was the template. Jesus was the pattern. We've been made to look like him. From the start, we were made to look like Jesus. So you point back and ultimately we see Jesus. Uh, You look ahead, we're called to embody God's kingdom. Which is revealed in Jesus. Luke 17 verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, don't be looking around for the kingdom. It's not the kind of thing that you you catch on the Sunday news. It's right here. It's in your midst, he says. It's me. Hello, look here. That's what he's saying. That the kingdom of God looks like him. So, I mean, honestly, to put it simple, our job is to be a giant Jesus. Our job is that the world could look at us together. Not anybody individually. No one person is expected to embody all the virtues at one time. Good luck with that. Uh, But together, we are a type of people who the world can look at and say, hey, that does look like Jesus. Which does at times mean that the world's going to say, hey, stop telling me that what I'm doing is wrong. Because that's what Jesus did sometimes. And that also means that they're going to look at us and say, you would do that for me? Wow. And we say, yeah. I mean, what else would we do? Because we just have become like Jesus. 
So that uh, closes up this third point. Let me mention the fourth one here, and then uh, we'll see if, I, like I said, I can save a little bit of time for questions. I think we're actually doing pretty good on time, but I don't want to, uh, I don't want to miss this bit. Lastly, we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. We're the continuation of Jesus' mission. Matter of fact, I can actually, let me pause and ask if you have any questions now. I'm not looking up because I'm giving you time to think. Uh, If you have any questions now, we'll talk through them now, and then I'll come to this at the end. If you don't, then I can continue working through this. Let me just give it a second, let it settle. Any questions? How many of you that drove, drove you crazy that I didn't fill in the blanks? Be honest with me. I'm not hating. That's all good by me. All right, so the fill in the blanks up on the... Justific- I love this. Justification by faith section. Um, under justification, it is a declaration of our legal status. As in, like, if God had a court of law, to be justified means that you're declared not guilty. And it also is a declaration of our covenant membership. In the Bible, the court of God is never separated from the covenant family. And so for God to say you're justified simultaneously means you're not guilty. And that also means you are part of the covenant community. You're part of my people. You're part of the church. And we're justified by faith, not works of the law. In that specific context, it would be referring to the Jewish law. Uh, And some of you have been there before. And what, what Paul is saying here as clearly as he possibly can is... How do we know you're a Christian? Not by whether or not you follow every rule in the Old Testament, but by whether or not you trust in Jesus, amen? Whether or not your faith is in him alone. That is the only dividing line. That is the only badge that we're asked to look for in determining whether or not a person is a follower of Jesus. This is why people who I think are absolutely critically wrong about moral issues as well as theological issues, people I think are going to be in trouble when they meet dad, I just think they just flat out are not paying attention to Scripture or are not paying attention to Scripture. So I still, though, will not say, but I know they're not a Christian. If they're saying their faith is in Jesus, I might say, it doesn't look to me like they're actually trusting him. But I, I won't go that far and say they're not. If they're, my faith is in Jesus as my Savior. This is why I don't know if this is controversial or not. I am slightly bothered by what I'm about to say next. So understand that I'm saying this, while I'm saying this, I'm thinking, I don't know if this is the right way to think about it. But uh, we have a lot of Mormon, we have some some Mormon friends out in California. I I think we have a Mormon neighbor who just moved in here. I don't know them yet personally. Um, I think Mormonism is a ugly, let's see, I don't want to use language that will offend you. I think Mormonism is an ugly heresy. I do. I think, it's a, it's, I think it, it's, it's a lie from the pit of hell that puts bondage and burdens on a lot of people. And if you've been there, maybe you know what I mean. And if you are currently Mormon, I apologize if I'm offending you. I'm happy to talk with you more. I'm saying what I'm saying out of love for you. Uh, I think it is ridiculous and wrong. And those who know all of what they're saying are going to be in trouble. I have known some Mormon people who didn't seem to know better, if I could say that without it sounding arrogant, who honestly, if you ask them, they're just trusting in Jesus for their salvation. So I think Mormonism is going to be in hell. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are some Mormons who don't really know all of what is in Mormonism and just know that Jesus died for me and I've accepted that sacrifice so that I might be with God, who are going to be in heaven. 
So like I said, I don't even know if I'm saying that well, but that for me is the extent of justification. Because if you say, I believe in him, then I don't know that I have the right to say, well, you're not. I think I do have the right to say, you're my brother or my sister, and therefore we need to have a conversation. But I want to approach that conversation with the right uh, mentality. Other questions? Anything else? Whether blanks or other such things. You guys seem to be doing well, but stretch, get the blood flowing just a little bit. If it were me, I'd do this anyway, but some of you are, are kinder than me, and so you're not going to do this unless you're given permission. Get the blood flowing. I want to finish uh, with this last point here, and it's one of my favorite aspects of this whole thing, and so I want to make sure and say it well. Uh, last thing I want to say, actually, last call. Questions? Hands up. Some of you are actually annoyed that I do this. You're annoyed that I wait this long for questions. How many of you are annoyed that I wait this? Don't ask. Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Last thing I want to say, we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. I want to be clear about what I mean by this. I don't mean Jesus did part one, we do part two. I mean Jesus did part one in a physical body. Jesus does part two through this body. Let me be clear about what I mean there. We do, in some sense, take up the baton and run with it. But not in the sense that we leave Jesus back there. It would be more like there's no actual race that works like this. More like if there was a race where a person ran a couple of legs and then was joined by their teammates and then ran together the rest of the legs. That's the kind of race this would be. The one where Jesus says, okay, I've done this part in this way, and now I'm going to be with you in a new way and send you off to continue it. Let me give you some text to show you what I'm talking about. Pay attention at a narrative level to the way the gospel of Mark and the book of Acts end. Both of them, have you ever read through Mark and you get to the end and you're like, maybe skip that last part that's in some of our Bibles but smaller. I don't think that was in the original. I think it was added because of precisely what I'm talking about. You get to verse 8 where it's like, and then they went away from that place and they were afraid. And you're like, what? That's it? What happened? Actually, many people in the early church were like, we must have lost the ending because the ending's so strange. I don't think the ending was lost. I think it was intentional. Luke does something similar in Acts. You're reading through Acts and it's this exciting story about the gospel taking over and moving throughout the world and they witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and they witness to Jesus in the surrounding areas and then Paul makes his way throughout the Roman world and he's finally made his way to Rome, the very center of the capital and he doesn't go stand before the governor. He doesn't go stand before the emperor. He just talks to some people and some of them believe but others kind of don't and he's there for about two years in house arrest preaching the gospel and then the story. Ends. What in the world? Like you talk about anticlimactic. I got a colleague who thinks that Luke planned a third volume because he thinks that it just can't end this way. I think that this, again, is intentional. That Mark and Luke both end in ways that are annoying because their point is you don't like my ending? Go finish the story yourselves. That is precisely why I think these books end this way. Mark says, you don't like what they did with the resurrection? Do something different with it. Luke says, okay, the gospel got to Rome. You thought that was the end of the story? Not a chance. You're chapter 29. You're the next phase. You're the next act. You're the next scene. So let's come back with this idea to our the church fulfills Israel concept. We've talked about it already in a couple of ways. And let me give you kind of the, I said, when I talked about with the people of God, it was God had a mission for the people of Israel and we as the church have inherited that mission. We are the fulfillment and continuation of that. Let me give you the middle, the connection, the thing that connects God's mission to Israel to the calling of the church. Here's how it works. First of all, God called Israel to reach the world and overcome the problems created by sin. 
Adam sinned, the world falls apart. God calls Abraham's family to be the means that God's going to bless the whole earth with. And then he calls the nation of Israel to be the means that God's going to bring this salvation to the world. Jesus fulfilled that mission. Jesus faithfully fulfilled the mission of Israel. That's why I don't think that there's a future for national Israel. Not because I'm some sort of political hater, but because I think Jesus is awesome. And I think he accomplished, I think he accomplished all of the things that the New Testament says he accomplished. And this is why the narrative works the way it does. This is why in Matthew 2, did you ever notice that Jesus goes from Bethlehem down into Egypt, like where Israel was, and then back up into the promised land, and then starts his ministry? Not an accident. He is repeating in his life the very story of Israel. Do you ever wonder why his three temptations are what they are? First of all, they are parallel to Eve's temptations. Jesus is tempted by three things. Turn the stones to bread, jump off the temple and see if they catch you. And you can have all the kingdoms of the world. Not only do these temptations correspond to Eve and Adam's uh, temptations, the reasons why they ate the fruit. But if you read Deuteronomy 6 through 8, here's your homework assignment. I want you to compare Matthew 4 to Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And I want you to notice that Jesus quotes in Matthew 4 from Deuteronomy 6 through 8 in answering Satan in these temptations. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 6 through 8, this portion of scripture that Jesus quotes, what you're going to discover is that here you see that these are specifically the rules that Israel was told to follow, but they failed. The whole point of this is that Jesus was successful where the rest of Israel was not. So it's not that Israel failed and Jesus was a plan B. It's that Jesus is the faithful Israelite. That's Paul's point in Romans 3. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3. You get the point. So God created, God called Israel to reach the world. Jesus fulfilled that mission. And the church inherited the mission of Jesus, which fulfilled the mission of Israel. That's the logic of Scripture's narrative. That's how the mission gets moved forward. So let me now ask you what is uh, one of my favorite lectures to give, especially to my freshmen. I won't give you the whole lecture, don't worry. But I, if, if there are only a few things that I will want my students to be able to tell me 20 years from now. I will want them to be able to tell me, if they had me for Galatians, that Galatians is a defense of gospel freedom. If they have me for Philippians, I want them to be able to tell me that Philippians is a call to cruciformity. So there are certain things I want to hear. If they had me for Acts, I want them to be able to tell me what the, very, what the most important word is in the very first verse. I know I haven't asked you to take out your Bibles, and it may be a little late, but take out your Bibles. I want you to, I want you to see something. I want you to circle a word in there for me. Cole, do you remember what the word is? Good, I'm about to come to you. I want you to take out and look at Acts 1.1. It's probably not the word you think. Acts 1.1. Luke is writing, and he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. There's Acts 1.1. What is the most important word in that section? It's not my, it's not former, it's not book. It's not even Jesus, although I may be cheating by saying that. Cole, what's the most important word in Acts 1.1? Began. I want you to circle the word began. Why is that the most important word in Acts 1.1? I'll tell you why. Because look at what Luke is doing. This is Luke writing the book of Acts, who just wrote the gospel of Luke. And he's talking about the gospel of Luke in my former book, Theophilus. So in the gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I don't know if you know this about Luke, but Luke covers more of Jesus' life than any other gospel. 
Luke doesn't start at the birth of Jesus. He doesn't even start at the announcement of Jesus' birth. He doesn't even start at the birth of his cousin who came before him. He starts at the announcement of the birth of his cousin who came before him and prepared the way. So he starts before Jesus ever shows up on the scene. And he doesn't end with the cross. None of them do. He doesn't end with the resurrection where most of the others end. He takes it a step further. And he's the one gospel writer who explicitly talks about the ascension. Jesus going back to be with God. And so you have this gospel of Luke that covers the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. All the teachings, all the healings, all the miracles, all the exorcisms, everything he did. And Luke says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Do you see the implication? He is still doing and teaching today. Where, you ask? That's the, that's the book of Acts. In you is the answer. And so the reason why began is the most important word in the first verse of the book of Acts is because it tells us that we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. That Jesus hasn't stopped working. All that he did when he was here is just the beginning. And what he has been doing since then in the church is the same type of thing. He didn't finish the job and say, okay, people, you're on your own. He did his work on earth and then said, now let's do this next work together. So yes, indeed, to come back to something some of you said when we first said, what is the church? We are the hands and feet of Jesus. More accurately, we're the hands and the feet and the shoulders and the stomach and the ears and etc., etc. We are the body of Christ, which means we are in some sense the presence of Christ on earth and the mission of Jesus moving forward. What does this mean? This means that what Jesus did on earth, he now does through us. I don't want to get too far ahead of us, but I want you to think about this when we come to the question, what do we do? When we as the church ask the question, what do we do? What should we be doing together? We're asking this as the body of Christ, which means we're asking this as the continuation of Jesus' mission, which means we're asking this as the people in and through whom Jesus is still doing what he did when he was first here. So what do we do? Well, we preach the gospel for sure. We teach each other about how to live life in God's kingdom. We heal diseases. We exercise demons. We take care of the poor. We find a place for the outsider. We live in such a way that the world can look at us and say, I don't get you, but I can't believe that you'd be willing to do that for me. And we say once again, of course we're willing to do that for you because we are nothing but a giant Jesus. So what this means that you are the continuation of Jesus' mission is that Jesus wants to do the very same things he did on the earth now through you. What it also means, and this is the last point I'll make, is that no matter how hard it gets, and I know it's difficult, and I know the nature of the difficulty for you is something that only you fully and perfectly understand. Only you fully and perfectly understand the nature of the difficulty for you to follow Jesus in your family, in your workplace, in your body, uh, on your neighborhood, on your street. Uh, Only you know what that's like. And what it means to say that we are the continuation of Jesus' mission is that no matter how hard it gets, we are never alone. That's what he's saying. When he says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, implying that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through you, what we take from that is the recognition that even if we find ourselves on the wrong side of history, even if we find ourselves suffering far beyond what we currently do, even if everything that the prognosticators say about the world is true, and it's all fallen apart, and our culture is going to be unrecognizably brutal in 50 years, I hope that doesn't happen, but even if it does, we are 
never alone. And so we keep doing the same thing we've always been doing. Independently of who's in the White House. Independently of the right guy gets in or the wrong guy gets in or the less wrong guy gets in. However you want to put it. Like whoever's in that seat of power and all the other seats of power. Whatever's going on around us in the world and however hard it gets for us personally. Sure it's difficult. I'm not trying to make light of it. But we are never alone. That is part of what it means to say that we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. So let me once more read through these things, summarize, and then I'm probably going to go ahead and have to pray and let us go for the sake of time. Summing up, we are the body of Christ, which means we are sinful people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Never forget that. We are a people living under Christ's authority. Never forget that either. We are a community of disciples learning to walk as Jesus did. Might as well remember that one too. And then lastly, we are the continuation of Jesus' mission. Let me pray for you and then we'll be done. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus. And we thank you for continuing that mission in us. We pray God that you would enable us to be people who rest in your grace. It's difficult for us to receive at one and the same time your promise of grace as well as your call to obedience and your commission to serve. It's hard for us to hold those things together in a way that doesn't overemphasize one or the other. And so we just need your grace. We pray that that grace would be the defining feature of our lives. That we would feel your, I don't want to be cheesy, but that we would feel your smile. That we would feel your presence. That we would feel your blessing. I pray God that that blessing and that that smile and that that presence then would lead us to ask on a daily basis. What would Jesus do if he were me in this conversation? What would Jesus do if he were me in this conflict? What would Jesus do if he were me uh, in this um, difficult ordeal? And Jesus, I pray that in those moments you would make as clear to us as we can see uh, what it is we should do. And then Spirit, give us the strength to carry it through. We thank you for calling us together as the church. And as we continue to talk together about what it means to be the church, Father God, we just pray that you would continue to bless us, help us to learn what we need to learn, help us to remember what we need to remember, and to help us to, uh, for this week, specifically remember that we're never alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.